Solving healthcare problems is really, really hard. Uh, I'm glad there are some really smart, hardworking people out there trying to do it. Um, but just know none of this is easy, but it's going to be worth it when you make it happen. This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health. Born and bred right here in Mill Valley, California, where we sit today in Tectonic Studio B, Sam Brash saw himself as a modern-day Alex P. Keaton. He just wanted to be a businessman. He was that kid who was reading the Lee Iacocca biography in fourth grade while the other kids played soccer and kickball. Sam got his wish and is today the leader of Kaiser Ventures, the corporate venture fund that helps drive innovation for Kaiser Permanente. This is Tectonics. I'm David Shewitz. And I'm Lisa Sunin, and we're grateful to Manat Health for sponsoring today's show. Manat Health is a multidisciplinary professional services firm that integrates a full-service law firm with a broad-based strategic business and policy consulting practice to help our clients grow and prosper. Manat Health supports the full range of stakeholders in transforming America's healthcare system. So, Lisa. Dude, you are so weird. (laughs) So, Lisa. Yes. What do you think about corporate venture funds these days? Now that you're in one. Absolutely. You finally got your wish. You're you're a venture capitalist. Got to help us all. Uh, Do you think the corporate venture funds are more suited to help build assets to serve core businesses of these large organizations? Are they better suited to think about the future, the blue sky, where current operations isn't focused yet? Well, it's really interesting when you start to ask, like, what's the purpose of these sort of corporate ventures? Because even in biotech or, you know, in pharmas, there's sort of these sort of two different models. And one is sort of like what Roche has, where there are these people who are doing venture, and they're just off on their own. Like, they're doing whatever the heck they want to, um, uh, sort of like this independent entity. And you sort of wonder, well, what are they doing even at Roche? I, I don't understand it, actually. Um, but uh, maybe they somehow were connect innovation. I don't, I don't know how that kind of is rationalized, but they seem happy. And then what I think is a much more of a common model is trying to, you know, look for a strategic alignment where you sort of try to be a little bit out in front of where the company is, but strategically aligned. So that's what our fund does, for example, where we look for things that would be a little bit too early to do a BD deal, but in broad areas that are strategically aligned. And those are the areas that we sort of look at for um, for investment. And um, I do think it makes sense. I think what you're sort of asking is, okay, well, you're going to find a really orthogonal thing. And I think that's where there can be tension because you might think, oh, this thing is super cool. And then it's like, well, it's not really one of our pillars, one of our areas, one of our, you know, McKinsey hasn't koshered it yet. And then, uh, <laughs> you know, what are you going to do? So I, I think that's where the tension is. But yeah. on the other hand, I think being able to provide an org- a large organization with a mechanism to be a little bit uh, out in front uh, and to sort of, uh, you know, kind of be looking out in front, around the corner, every every, every cliche you'd like. Mm-hmm. We sort of get a chance to do that and um, see some amazingly cool yeah, stuff. Yeah, well, I've seen all kinds, you know, ones that are really looking out forward and ones that are looking more internally. And, and we'll look forward to hearing from Sam what they are doing at Kaiser. So speaking of Sam, 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 who is sitting here live, baby, waiting to defend my childhood after Lisa (laughs) just threw me under the bus with my Leah Coco autobiography experience. Speaking of this, look, dad, I just, I I just lost my head, you know? Oh, Jesus. When the, when the money started rolling in, I got out of control. This is classic. I I could smell it. I could taste it. I could hear it calling me at night saying, Alex, at last, we'll be together. <laughs> so we've known each other for a long time, Sam, but I did not know until very recently about your secret Alex P. Keaton, Lee Iacocca worship. What was that about? Did the other Mill Valley kids tease you? 
Absolutely. I kept it as, I mean, there were so many things to tease me about. I mean, let's just put it all out there. Not only did I like Alex P. Keaton, not only did I read Lee Iacocco, I did play on the soccer team, and they actually made me captain only because I was the only kid that could follow instructions. I wasn't very good. But, uh, but then I also, I would drag my friends to my tap dance routines. I did it all. I mean, wow. I tried it all. I was bad at all of it. But, uh, Renaissance you know, uh, one, you could call it that. The, the untalented version of all those things. So um, it's rare to find somebody born and raised and still living in the same California town. Yep. How has the Bay Area changed over your life here uh, for the better and not for the better? Oh, you know, I'm old and curmudgeon now. So I look at Marin County now and say it wasn't like when I was a kid. Back when but, I was um, growing up. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, you know, I grew up here. My wife grew up here. We did leave. We always like to defend ourselves for about 15 years, lived a bunch of other places. Um, but, it, you know, it's a great place to come back. You know, it's, it's a beautiful place. Professionally, there's a lot of exciting things happening here. I mean, the biggest difference between 20, 30 years ago and now is it's a little more of a one-industry town. Yeah. Whether it's healthcare technology or information technology, it's it's technology-oriented. And so people talking about VC stuff on a Sunday morning in Mill Valley didn't happen 20 years ago. But I know, right? Here we are. We're the problem. But it is funny, right? Like, but like you go to like any Starbucks and it's uh, or 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 side class or whatever. But it's funny about people kind of returning home salmon style to the uh, Bay Area. Um, another one of our guests, David Goodman, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, all I remember in med school, he was like a med school roommate. Yeah. Every year, I just want to go back. I just want to go back. Just want to go back to Marin. Now, you know, lives in Green Bay or whatever. <laughs> so no, it does call us back. So it's a, it's a good spot to be. Sticking with our Bay Area theme, and I will preface it with Go Bears. You went to Stanford and had an original plan to maybe be a Supreme Court justice or a senator if you couldn't be a businessman. What was driving that fluctuation of you? Where did you see those roles? What was the theme or the thing you were looking for as you were thinking about your career unfolding? Man, as you play my childhood back to me, how was I obnoxious? Um, <laughs> or at least I was the stupid to share it all with you. Um, you know, I, I, yeah, I think there's a couple consistent things that I've liked or found interesting in different parts of my life, whether it's career or childhood or otherwise. Um, I like the idea of having an impact, you know. You're 18 years old. You don't know what that means. You run for student council. Um, I like the idea of being part of government because I thought that was a neat way to potentially have some impact. Um, you know, when I then started getting into the business side of healthcare, you know, for me, it was an interesting transformation of having studied health policy in college, really thinking I was going to be policy oriented, but then jumping into working in healthcare. For me, it became a natural evolution of, oh, I really do like being in the healthcare industry. I'm not smart enough to be a doctor, so I've got to figure out a way to have some impact. And for me, it felt like the best way to do that was be in some sort of business role. And I've, I've evolved in what that means, but in some sort of business role, but within the healthcare environment. You, you obviously could have been gone to medical school if you wanted to. And I imagine um, actually knowing you, you would have been a wonderful doctor. Um, what, what made you decide to pursue something different? Yeah. Well, thank you. I'll, I'll take any compliments from you I can get since Lisa's not throwing in my way. Um, <laughs> See, that's called splitting. You yeah, learned exactly. that in med school. You're the good but, cop. Now I get but, it. Um, <laughs> you know, for me, the aspect of healthcare that excited me most was not the scientific or clinical aspect of, you know, how do you solve for this disease? You know, I, I think that's unbelievably important. It just wasn't what called to me. It didn't feel like 
where I was going to be best suited. I mean, maybe even back to what I thought I was good at as a kid. I like helping to move organizations or people in a direction. I like trying to help lead efforts. And so for me, that was less about being a doctor, although there's lots of clinical roles where you can be a leader, but more of either working in hospitals or working in the healthcare industry in different ways. So for me, yeah, I did have that epiphany at some point, you know, early 20s of, oh, I'm doing it all wrong. I should be a doctor. But then I spent some more time thinking about it. I'm like, no, that that actually doesn't excite me on a day-to-day basis, even though it's important work. But you had your own medical experience when you were young, yep. right? You ha- you got hit in the head uh, with a golf ball on a family trip to Ireland. Perpetuating everything about yeah. my stereotype. My injury doesn't come <laughs> on the hard streets of somewhere. But, you know, th- I mean, we could make all sorts of jokes, but not, not funny. You ended up with a pretty serious head injury from that. Yep. How did that or did it impact your future trajectory? I mean, did it drive you to a further interest in medicine that you didn't know you had? I think it it continued to expose me to the healthcare system. You know, I spent time sitting in the office of my pediatric neurosurgeon and neurologist, all trying to figure out what to do about this. Uh, you know, I had my golf ball injury led to subdural hematoma. I had seizures, was wow. on medicine for years, and it was all pretty manageable. So it didn't have any dramatic impact on my day-to-day living, but it exposed me more to the healthcare system. And again, you know, I remember sitting in my pediatric neurosurgeon's office one day and reading a letter from the parents of one of his patients, and he saved their life. I was like, wow, you can be involved in an industry or a field and a profession where you're saving people's lives or dramatically improving their lives. And it was just kind of furthering my interest in, in figuring out ways I could be involved in And healthcare. so I wanted to manage workflow. Exactly. So I wanted to be a management consultant originally and figure out how to cut people from the staff of the ED, which is exactly the same thing, right? But in the end, you join a consulting firm out of college, Mm -hmm. right? And uh, you, in fact, work with uh, Amir Rubin, one medical, one of our prior show stars. It's so perfect because you are sounding so much like him. (laughs) Just a taller version, right? Yeah, really. And uh, you you said to me that you thought at the time that your dream job would be to be CEO of UCSF. And then you changed your mind. Yeah. Well, I had a couple of things that helped me there. One, my dad was a 40-year UCSF doctor who told me that it was the worst job in the world because <laughs> as a typical clinician, he didn't think that was good. Um, but yeah, I, you know, and I don't think there's any one right or wrong role. But for me, I spent the first few years of my career working. You know, Amir was one of the more senior people in our consulting firm, but consulting into hospital systems and realizing like there's a lot of important work that happens there, but it's it's a different kind of work. You know, it's it's a lot of managing through a bureaucracy and trying to get stakeholders aligned. And again, important. Um, but I had the chance when I went back to business school, and that's one of the you know, the great things about business school is you just get to step back and think about what's going to be the most interesting, enjoyable version of work. And for me, I started to see what people were doing on more product side of healthcare, people who are building products and, and trying to grow companies. And and they seem like they're having a lot more fun. Um, and, and so that, that started my kind of pivot a little bit directionally towards more of the product side of healthcare. Well, you actually still a little stint at a startup before business school, right? At Metacopia? Yep. So what was the... Did that turn you on or turn you off the whole entrepreneurship thing? What was that like? Uh, it turned me on. I did it like a typical MBA where I went back to business. Or I went. I had gotten into business school deferred for a year, and so I had a year to go work for this startup. So, you know, risk free, which is a typical MBA approach to working in startups, um, <laughs> or venture capitalist approach to working in startups. But it was great. Again, that was my first taste of being inside a small company and people trying to figure out how to solve a problem. People being creative and and flexible and innovative. Uh, but working together in one direction. And, and it was, I loved it. And so I, I 
spent that time before going back to business school. I spent a summer in between business schools working for startups. And, and again, I've, I've now been around startups ever since. I, I find it an amazingly exciting It must be kind of interesting to have had the experience both consulting for healthcare systems and then working at a startup that's trying to sell into them. Mm-hmm. Was there insights that you thought that the folks that, that, that you were trying to impart on the people about, like, oh, my gosh, if you only saw the inside of the belly of the beast? Yeah, no, it, it was an amazingly valuable initial experience, and it may, it remains. I mean, it's one of the most valuable things even about what the work I do today is that I have seen and continue to live in a healthcare system. And you can see the differing understanding of the needs between those trying to sell in their specific focused product for a problem and those inside the healthcare system. They're saying, well, that's just one tiny component of my bigger, bigger, bigger issue. And you're not actually solving it by just giving me a new piece of software. So how does that impact how you look at companies today when you evaluate them as a VC? It is probably the the most uh, influential aspect, you know, in, you know, in terms of how we consider companies, which is... Um, we, and it's one of the beautiful things about doing this work with Kaiser Permanente, is we sit inside the beast. You know, we can see what it's like and what are the problems that these folks are trying to solve for. And, and when you look from the outside and these entrepreneurs have these point solutions. That's I what think, I was asking you about, point solutions, because yeah. I think, like, I, I feel like I've heard Bob Kocher argue, I mean, people take, I, I don't want to misrepresent him, but I know there's a lot of debate about this exact topic, about whether one is or isn't, people feel strongly both ways, uh, uh, to be most successful in the healthcare system with a point solution versus not. Yeah. Because the argument in favor is, okay, this is a discrete thing. You don't have to reinvent and reimagine everything. You're solving a very discrete problem um, that, that you can, you know, measurably make better. The argument against it is, okay, well, it's just your little problem isn't really going to work in the broader context. Yeah, I, I think you have a few things working against you for point solutions. One, your little solution will not work in the broader context. One, you're addressing a small enough problem that it just won't get the attention of those folks that need to be at the table to consider adopting your solution. So everyone from the C-suite, which everyone always wants to sell into, but they could care less. They just don't have time to think about your point solution to even the IT organization in the hospital system that just doesn't have time to implement your point solution when they've got 20 other priorities. So that, I mean, I'm so interested in this. So does this mean like one needs to go big or go home? Yeah, we, we try to be a little more nuanced than that. That you know, We do, you know, yes, that if you're going to be selling into a hospital system, our first, you know, lens on it, is it big enough and is it big enough and broad enough and solving a big enough need across a large organization that it matters? If not, and you're a point solution, you've got to have a few very specific characteristics that are going to make this work. You have to solve a very specific need. You have to be have an amazingly clear kind of ROI or value proposition. And you have to sell into the part of the organization that is a little bit insulated from other parts. You know, For instance, we have a company that has a patient privacy solution selling into the compliance officer. That's a point solution, but it's a segment of the organization where they actually have a little bit of their own autonomy and they're going to make their own decisions. And so there it might work. Whereas a point solution analytics tool that then needs to fit into the larger analytics strategy of a large hospital system, it's really tough to do that. So you, after business school, and you obviously did the whole Alex P. Keaton, like you went to Stanford, you went to Wharton, like check, check, check. But then you went to Medtronic, which which wasn't a startup, Mm -hmm. um, was obviously already a big company. What was that like? I mean, how did you, it was kind of completing the whole picture, right? I mean, working in in the health system, working as a consultant, you know, now at a big manufacturer. What was notable about that experience? Yeah. I mean, one thing that I've, probably one of the few things I've done well in my career is I've listened to smart people. So, you know, the Medtronic experience was a couple smart people 
I was talking to when I was in business school said, you need to broaden your experience. Like if you think you want to be a startup entrepreneur or if you think you want to be a VC, you're you know, six months, nine months here in startups. That's not enough. Like you need to really understand. And at this point in time, I was pretty focused on the medical device industry. So I had the opportunity to go to a big company. Um, I found it invaluable. And I, I now repeat this feedback you know, to a lot of people coming out of business school earlier in their career. Like, you think, oh, I can't spend two to four years, two to five years in a big company. I'm going to waste all this time. The amount of learning you'll do in those first few years in a big company is unbelievable. So for me, I got a little lucky um, you know, in that I joined a small, entrepreneurially oriented division of Medtronic. So it wasn't the big mothership. Um, but I learned more in those four, you know, four years uh, that was valuable for the rest of my career than I ever could have hoped for. I mean, the world of med tech has changed unbelievably yeah. since that time, right? I mean, it's much harder to get a product to market now yep. than it was back then. The weight of evidence is much higher. Yeah, I think we've just all, I mean, the things we should have known then, mm -hmm. you know, that we now know um, are helpful. And I think we were seeing it real time. But yeah, you have to have real value proposition. You have to generate all the data and the data needs to support that this is really useful. So do you take any, um, I'm sure you've made note of the fact that there was just this week, a re I, I thought for the first time in forever, right, this new med tech fund from this, uh, right, from, yeah. um, you know, it's X, right. XNEA and um, uh, um, Justin. Yeah, Justin and Kirk. Right, yeah. right. Um, uh, an adversant, mm -hmm. um, and it's based in, as I understood it, um, uh, in Minnesota, right? Yep. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, you know, Justin and Kirk are two of the smartest, best med tech investors that are still act, you know, that are active in the space. And so- Might be the only two left in the space. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm giving them the smartest. Um, they've been great at it, and they've been actually great at it over the years, even when so many of the rest of us have really struggled to, to successfully invest in med tech. Um, innovation, they, they've done a good job of it. So I was very excited to see that there's money mm -hmm. behind them because I trust what they're going to try and do with it. Um, I just wouldn't trust myself because it's hard in the med tech space. I mean, it is a challenging environment to successfully build a startup company. Yeah. No, I think the thing that's really the most difficult is, is reimbursement, mm -hmm. really. I mean, I think, you know, all of the other issues aside, that has become the real non-starter for a lot of these companies. Yeah. And so from the venture model, you now have to fund it through the technical development, the clinical development, the regulatory approval, and now the reimbursement and commercial. And so it takes a lot of money to build a company in the med tech space. Um, so you left Medtronic. You had a chance to run a huge and important, well, what would have turned out to be a huge and important franchise, the drug looting stent franchise, um, and instead went to go be a VC, went to, went to venture capital at Frazier which at the time was still being more of a venture fund than a PE fund, um, very focused on med tech, among other things at the time, that it seemed sexy, you said. That's why you went to do that. What, <laughs> Only Alex P. Keaton would think this what was is sexy. sexy. What was it about it that seemed sexy to you, and, and was it? Uh, sexy. Oh, God, I probably did say it, but um, I apologize to everyone. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, coming from – being in an operational role at Medtronic where you're deep in the weeds for anyone who's, you know, either in a startup or a big company, I mean, you're just deep into the details. You know, I'm managing individual sales reps. I'm making sure that we've got the right collateral material conferences. So all the detailed stuff that can be pretty challenging and um, monotonous at times. Um, you know, VCs at the other end of the spectrum. You get to constantly be exposed to all these exciting entrepreneurs who are pursuing and trying to solve all these really interesting problems. So you appreciated the um, wanton superficiality of it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I realized I'm better if I don't have to go deep and I can just kind of nod along. So. Right. 
Right, um, right. Yeah, this is your range yeah. thesis all over. Yeah, exactly. Again. <laughs> um, so yeah, That's so the for me, version of it. <laughs> you know, for me that you know, I liked my MedTrack experience, and I wasn't. I was actually more excited to stay there than I would have expected. I always assumed I wanted to get an adventure, and, and when it finally came, I was excited because I liked the folks at Fraser in particular. Um, but it did feel like a neat alternative to kind of the detailed operational work you have to do when you have a real job. So you've worked both in in the fifteen years of venture that you've now done, or so. You've worked both in the independent fund side, Fraser, New Leaf, and then you've worked at Kaiser, the corporate venture side. What um, what are the differences? Like, what are the what are the material differences? Yeah, um, for me, I find, and, and again, you know, different corporate roles, you know, funds are structured differently. But you know, for me, KP, it just makes the job easier. It makes me feel like I can be better being a VC given the platform I have. Um, because when I'm looking at a company, and most, you know, we invest in everything in healthcare but biotech, because that's not where we have any expertise as a large organization. But, you know, we're a hospital system, we're a payer, we're 13 million members, you know, anything that's going on in healthcare otherwise, software, services, we've got people in our organization that are either living with that problem or just have amazing experiences that can help us reflect on what the company's trying to do. So I don't have to understand everything. I need to understand what it takes to grow a company. I need to understand how to structure a team and how to bet on people. Um, but I, you know, and at Fraser we did the same thing. You hire consultants, but here I don't need to hire consultants. They're all my colleagues, and so I go. But back do you and, worry? Do you worry at all that Kaiser is a bit of an unusual animal? Like mm-hmm. it's not necessarily representative of the health systems of America, uh, much less other places. Do you worry that you're evaluating it through a pretty closed lens or narrow lens? Yeah. We do. And so we try to solve for that by making sure we don't only get the KP perspective. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think our whole team comes from different aspects of the healthcare industry. So we all know enough about healthcare to be dangerous. And we all know enough to recognize that KP is one specific model. You know, there are different models even within KP. Different regions are have more exposure to fee-for-service and things like that. But, but KP has one model. And so we look outside KP as well. But that said, the value we get by having colleagues on our side helping us think about these things is is really valuable for us in trying to make how good does decisions. It, how does it, so um, how does your fund sit in the context of broader business development? I mean, is it sort of – it's certainly a strategic fund, I imagine. Ish. Uh, it is interesting. I mean, you started out talking about how kind of the strategic funds – you know, there's even different models on the pharma biotech side. I sometimes think of pharma biotech as a completely different kind of beast than what we have on the healthcare delivery corporate fund side because we are not solving the strategic needs. I mean, the strategic needs are too big and too com- you know too overwhelmingly complex to solve through a venture fund. Um, the strategic value that we create for the organization is being this conduit between KP and this innovation ecosystem, for lack of a better term. So as long yeah, as they're buying it, that's great. <laughs> I'm just going to say it enough, and they're going to um, yeah. So. We help people in the organization understand different ways that people are trying to solve problems they may be having. Um, and, and that's valuable for a place like KP where there is no easy way to access all this exciting entrepreneurial stuff that's happening. We can help bring it in, whether it's our specific portfolio companies or just other companies that we've come across. You know, We're funneling back in that information. But do you make investments in companies that don't wind up having a relationship with KP? Yes, we, we, on purpose or no, not on purpose. Uh, and it's you know yeah, it is the constant challenge of a fund like ours, where we'll tell an entrepreneur 
12 times in the diligence process that we do not link an investment to a customer contract. And there's not a wink, wink behind it. Like, it's true. We cannot commit a $60 billion organization's decisions around what startups they're but working with. does it with. have negative signaling if you don't, in, if, if you guys don't? It, it, it can. It can be a challenge. And so we go into an investment with a judgment call that we know definitively this company is doing something that the f- leaders in KP have told us makes sense. And they're doing it in a way that the people in KP really believe is the right approach. And we go into it with the hope. And then we put some effort behind it to see if we can build a relationship that's valuable for KP and that company. But it doesn't always happen. And it's a challenge. So can you give an example of a company situation where it's worked, quote unquote, and then also one where it didn't work and why both of those things happened? Yeah. Um, a couple of easy ones. I mean, we're investors in a company called KitCheck. They do pharmacy automation. You know, they have a national contract. There are all our hospitals. It's working. Like it, it the contract. Why? Didn't... Why did that work? Why was that um, a good? You know, why did that come through the investment side and make it into operations? Um, not very few things actually ever start entirely in the investment side. So when we started doing diligence, our pharmacy operations leader already knew of this business. Okay. So. Yeah, you know, we, we look for those. We look for ones where there's already a signal, but we invested in the company and helped KP. You know, it's hard for big companies to work with small companies. So even the handholding we can do just to help them build a relationship is valuable. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, you know, it really worked because they have a product that works for our organization and we invested in that company because of that. Okay. We didn't create the demand. Okay. And what um, about you know, where it didn't work, you know, Health Catalyst, which is a fantastic company, and we're still working on it. I haven't given up. But um, when we made the investment, KP was already decided to start working with them in one region. It went well, but then in the short term, uh, KP decided they were going to try and build out their own broad internal platform instead. You know, maybe they're going to come back to Health Catalyst. We don't know, but that's an example of I can't control that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we went into it with a real expectation and clear signals and there's still the same signal that the health solution is fantastic, but now there's a move to see what we can build internally. So how do you define success in your job given all that? Is it returns? Is it impact on the organization or Great something question. else altogether? Yeah. We, like a lot of us, we struggle with this. So we start with returns um, and we do have to generate financial returns. Not all of our dollars come so from within So by that 50. measure, Health Catalyst looks like a better investment than GitCheck, right? Well, I haven't given up hope on KitCheck either, but <laughs> Health Catalyst so is public far. and doing well now. So, yeah. And our fund has actually done great financially. Mm-hmm. Um, and most of our money comes from within KP. We do have some outside LPs too, a couple other health systems. So we just have a fiduciary responsibility to generate returns. Um, but then measuring the softer side of the strategic value is hard. And we're, we're doing it. We're trying to measure you know, the number of relationships between our portfolio and KP. We're trying to measure the number of times we introduce a company into the organization that gets adopted in one way or another. Um, and, and we have a bunch of different things we're trying to better understand to help us figure out where's the value beyond the financial side. So you have a team of people, uh, most of whom I happen to know. Yeah. Several went to Berkeley, so there. Um, and one of the Amy went to my high school. Oh, did she really? Yeah. I didn't know that. But very diverse gender-wise. Yes, which is very unusual in our field, maybe not as unusual in corporate venture, but you've really made a, a pretty profound, uh, uh, not just attempt, but actuality of creating a highly gender diverse team. What's the secret to that? Why is this so hard for others? I mean, you were you at the meeting in uh, at Health Evolution where this topic came up? No, the okay. Women's Confab the day before? No, no, oh. uh, the main, the corporate venture meeting. We had a discussion about, you know, it was a room full of corporate venture people. Yes, yes I was there. Yeah, okay. Um, so- 
clearly not everybody's skill set to build yeah. a genderverse team. Why, why are you good at it? Uh, yeah, I won't pretend that I have the perfect answer for how you do this. I mean, I think it starts with being open and looking for people who come from different, you know, who aren't yourself. You don't, you know, you look in the mirror and you say, I'm not going to hire. Yeah, you have to have intention to look outside of, you know, exactly who you are. I, some of it's just fortuitous. You know, I've known Amy, who's on my team since we were 25 working together. I know she's great. I hired her because she was by far the best person we could possibly hire to come partner with me in this work. Um, Amy brings a very clear perspective about how we need to be expanding the diversity within venture and the entrepreneurial community. Um, and so, it, you know, as a team, you start having it at the forefront and making sure it's part of the conversation every time you make a hire. Mm -hmm. um, and, and we, you know, it, it comes up every time we make a hire and we never target. We're saying we're going to hire a woman for this position or someone from an underrepresented uh, ethnicity. But as we evaluate candidates, mm -hmm. if if there's two equal candidates and, and someone comes from an underrepresented group, we're going to say, you know what, if, if they're e all things being equal, we're probably going to figure out if the person's from an underrepresented group. Is for your vision for of us. diversity, in addition to the categories you're describing, do you also include things like viewpoint diversity? Yeah. I mean, I think that's even harder to figure out in the uh, hiring process. Um, but I, I think what we've tried to do is diversity on gender and racial lines, and then some gen some diversity in terms of experiences. So not everyone who's come out of an MBA program with the same set of experiences. Um, that said, I, I don't think, you know, we could definitely be broader. I mean, these are young business people. So um, there's some uh, sun conforming that's already happening to a degree. Yeah, but on the other hand, I think it's an interesting question, because on, on the one hand, diversity is great. On the other hand, you need a little bit of groupthink and a fund because you have a charter and a focus and, and, you know, an alignment around how you look at deals. And if people aren't on board with that, that thinking, it doesn't work very well. Yeah. That's nope. such a great question of how, because this is what always comes up is how do you balance efficiency? You're coming to the best decision, which is people where people would say would happen if you have infinite diversity or maximal diversity, you know, with how, with a need to make decisions in a timely way. Mm -hmm. And the way you get that is having everyone be exactly the same person in, in, in the limit. Yeah. Right. You know what I mean? Like, and so where, how do you find that balance? We work at it. It's hard. It's the hardest thing we do, which is how do we continue to facilitate a dialogue and a culture that allows for efficient, but effective decision-making. And, and again, we haven't solved for this, but we work at it. I and mean, we have an offsite next week as a team. We, you know, it's all about how do we facilitate speaking up uh, as a culture. So with a new team, it's been hard because we all come at it from different perspectives. Uh, some of us come from venture and we understand like there's certain ways you approach these discussions, but not everyone. And so we've been working really hard to figure out what works, what doesn't kill the ideas that might be coming from people who have a different perspective. And so... It's so cool. a constant. So you have three kids, right? Yes. Two are girls. Yes. Would you encourage them into venture capital? Sure, if they like it. I mean, venture's fun. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Not to sound trite, but if you have work that's fun, which venture is mostly on a day-to-day basis, intellectually interesting, um, that's a great combination. And so right. I'm enjoying it. Um, I, you know, I hope they do something more interesting. They're artists or chefs or something else. But if they like it, I'll definitely support it. I always thought the venture thing, what I've seen was, I always thought it was like the movie Something About Mary, <laughs> where like every MD and every PhD I sort of knew who even was near industry or near, maybe this is just from being in the Boston, San Francisco yeah. area. But everybody had some cockamamie scheme to wind up in venture. Oh, yeah. Every single person. And it was just sort of like they, the same way, you know, so it's, uh, it's funny. Yeah. And I 
try to remind people, again, like I'm now repeating all the things people told me when I was younger and I, I hate it, but I try to tell people it's not the perfect job. It, it, people from the outside think they got to get into it because they're naive like I was and thought it was sexy or great. Uh, it's a great job. But some people, I remind them, like, if you really want to be in there and build something, go work in a startup. Like, it's frustrating to be at just at the board level or, or half step removed. So it's, it's a good job, but not perfect for everyone. So have any of your kids yet picked up Lee Iacocca's book? No, no, no. <laughs> They're way, luckily they're way more interesting and, and cool than I am. Um, but uh, you know, maybe I'll I'll throw it under their uh, in their Christmas stocking or something and just see who <laughs> takes it. Well, it's been great to have you on the show today, Sam. Always a pleasure to see you. Yeah, thank you, Lisa. If you can find a better car, buy it. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I did. I did. I had forgotten about my Lee Iacocca fanhood until he passed away this summer, and like eight kids from my childhood sent me texts with their condolences. So. <laughs> It was a tough summer in the Brash household. He's a he's terrific. I love it. You know, we we've talked with him over the years, yeah, right? Yeah, sure. And um, he has such good perspective on this, and he seems so approachable to have so many different experiences. It's interesting because uh, I can see attributes that he has that Amir Rubin has, and even a pop coacher. I mean, I think mm. that there are people who look at healthcare. I, I never got this because I, I, I never was this way. But I really appreciate it and appreciate the value of people who look at it and go, I want to understand how the organization works. I want to understand mm -hmm. the business underlying it. And it's a pretty good instinct to have. I mean, you sort of critically need that. There's a real... A domain of expertise there and it looks like he's really both got into it in general and then he's now focused on the product side well it's interesting because what we didn't cover was that he had been at kaiser ventures and he left oh, uh, and he went to newly for a while and then he went back to kaiser and huh. i think he you know found at least that's my my interpretation of it, is he really found that um he liked that that alignment with the corporate side the operating side it sort of took best advantage of what he thought about and how he liked to look at companies that's really cool because he seems to be in a great place for his background and his interests yeah and the sexiness and he yeah super sexy and he's also pulled together an amazing team of people Endorse, many, of, many yeah. of whom i've gotten to work with over the years in different capacities and they were just sharp as, as can be so you can follow david's writing at forbes and the occasional wall street journal review and you can follow lisa sunin's writings at venturevalkyrie.com we're grateful to manat health for sponsoring today's show Manat Health is a multidisciplinary professional services firm that integrates a full-service law firm with a broad-based strategic business and policy consulting practice to help clients grow and prosper. Manat Health supports the full range of stakeholders in transforming America's healthcare system. Be well. You bet. You bet.